Has everybody done their homework? I'm still playing Super Mario Brothers, so like I'm really behind. GPC, which is glycerol phospho phosphoro choline. Uh, I'm struggling here. Welcome to Freely Filtered. Freely Filtered is a twice a month podcast for NEFJC, where we go over the most important articles in nephrology that are moving the field forward. This week, we're going to be talking about the treatment of hypernatremia. Joining me tonight, we have uh, Jenny Lin. Hi, I'm Jenny Lin. I am a physician scientist at Northwestern University. We have Matt Sparks. Hey, this is Matt Sparks. I tweet at nephro underscore sparks. I'm a physician scientist at Duke University. And Samira Farouk. Hey, I'm Samira. I'm a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai in New York. I tweet at at SS Farouk. This week's article is about the treatment of hypernatremia. And I think it's actually pretty rare that we see a retrospective or observational trial that has the ability to really change practice. But I get the feeling that this is one of the exceptions, that this is an article that's going to kind of push the field forward in a direction that it needs to go in terms of the treatment of hypernatremia. Changes in sodium usually track with changes in tonicity. Tonicity is a measure of all the osmotically active particles in solution. Now, it's important to remember that not every particle in solution is osmotically active. So if the particle can cross the semipermeable membrane, it's not going to exert any osmotic force and it's not going to draw water across. It's going to flow across instead. A perfect example of that is going to be ethanol or alcohol. When you drink alcohol, that alcohol freely flows through the cell membranes into the cell. It'll increase the osmolality on both the intracellular and extracellular components. And so you don't get any movement, net movement of water. So your tissues don't change in size. So any of the effects of alcohol are not due to the movement of water, whether those effects are good or bad. Sodium is the primary source of extracellular tonicity. So changes in sodium concentration do affect just tissue size, and it does cause symptoms. Classically, the development of acute hyponatremia causes acute symptoms. In acute hyponatremia, what do we see this? We see this with um, uh, forced water ingestion, like that uh, stupid radio contest where uh, Melissa Strange, excuse me, Jennifer Strange, drank all that water and cause herself to herniate her brain and die. Or uh, that 14-year-old girl, I think it was in the Netherlands, who was playing water poker in which she had to fo- was forced drinking of water. Was that your uh, hold your weave? For a wee, is that what? That was, was, yeah, that was Jennifer Strange, was the hold your wee for a wee. Do you guys remember when that happened? It was no. a while back, but it, people use the reference every year, so yeah. maybe, right. I mean, maybe it was like eight horrible. or nine years ago. Yeah, it was, a ho- it was a horrible story where they had this contest where they invited this uh, these participants. It was when the wee was really popular. When it, was, and it was hard to get one, and you could win one, and all you had to do was drink the most amount of water without peeing. Uh, this girl did not win drank a ton of water, and as she was leaving the radio station, she was complaining of a headache. Right, She didn't have a headache. She had cerebral edema, and she later died. Radio station was found innocent, even though they had been talking about beforehand that they're like, is this safe? Can't you die from drinking too much water? And that's exactly what happened. So I looked it up. It's actually was 12 years ago. Yeah, because we're three gen, right? Because that was the Wii, and then we had uh, the second generation. What was it? Like the Wii U, and then after that, we have the um, the Switch, the Nintendo Switch. So we're many generations past the Wii. Well, I haven't even heard of a Nintendo Switch. I'm that out of it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, we we should cut that out. You don't you don't want that recorded on the on the podcast. That's 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 not a good that's not a good look, Jenny. 
I'm still playing Super Mario Brothers, so like I'm really behind. Okay, we are way off the rails. <laughs> Aren't we talking about correcting hypernatremia? I think we're. I think we're eventually get there. Does it um, matter? Does it matter yeah. how how we get there? Well, you only, you only have an hour of recording left, so we better. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Let me get mad at flash drive. Um, oh my gosh! When you get acute hyponatremia, what you what ends up happening is you dilute the extracellular compartment, so it is hypotonic compared to the intracellular compartment, and then you get a shift of water from the low concentration to the high concentration, and that causes the the cells to grow in size, the tissues to grow in size. Primarily, this is a problem in uh, the brain where you have this limited space because of the calvaria, and it increases intracranial pressure, and it can force the brain down through what is that? The foramen magnum is that what that's called? And you get herniation of uncle herniation and death. So you know, and, and acute hyponatremia, what do we see this? We see this with uh, MDMA-induced SIADH. Uh, we see this with uh, exercise-induced hyponatremia. So it used to be, you know, used to be every year during a marathon, you'd hear about a guy or a woman, usually a woman, strangely enough, uh, dying from uh, acute hyponatremia during a marathon. It kind of causes an SIADH-like picture where they can't clear excess water. And then there's this great series. There's this issue of the New England Journal of Medicine from 1986. And if you're a sodium geek, you got to pull it because it has uh, this series by a reef of uh, 15 women with acute post-operative hyponatremia. I think their sodium started at like 137. They all go down to 108. They all ended up getting uh, severe and permanent neurologic derangement. And a reef's position was that it was the acute hyponatremia that was the problem. The very next article in that issue is by Richard's, a very young Richard Stearns talking about central pontine myelinolysis. And this is the first mention of central pontine myelinolysis in a big time journal. Everything else had been in kind of obscure neurologic journals or maybe some rare basic science stuff, but this was bringing it to the forefront and this was talking about it in the New England Journal of Medicine. And then there's an editorial by Robert Nairns, who's like what, the dean of electrolytes in that same issue. So it's, a, it's you know, I mean, I, I, all the electrolyte guys have that framed and on the wall of their, of their house. I give that out as uh, party gifts. But it's, it's, it's well worth taking a look at these early explanations of that. But this is acute hyponatremia. And you can imagine that you can get the exact same process going from a high sodium down to a normal sodium. Because the point is not, it's not the absolute number of the sodium, it's the change. It's the fact that you get a relatively hypotonic extracellular compartment compared to an intracellular compartment. And so if you had chronic hypernatremia that had been going on for more than 48 hours, and then you acutely lower that sodium, you could see, you could cause cerebral edema. And this has been supported in a handful of studies, all done in infants. And so the first case series that's always quoted is this case series uh, from 1979. Um, it was 60 consecutive children with volume depletion and a sodium of 150. They all had GI losses as the etiology. And nine of these little infants developed seizures, age range zero to five months. And they matched these nine kids with 22 non-seizure kids. They matched them by age. And when they looked at these two things, they found that the kids that had seizures, they corrected their sodium at about one millimole per liter per hour. And the kids that didn't have seizures corrected at 0.6 millimoles per liter per hour. But I mean, if you take a look at these labs, I mean, these kids were pretty jacked up. Average BUN in the seizure group was 180. Their total CO2 was 8. Their pH was 7.0. I mean, these were really profoundly ill kids, not like the typical patients that I see with hypernatremia that are not nearly that severely ill. They went back and did a second cohort of kids, which they called their kind of validation cohort or treatment cohort, where they 
had changed their protocol from 160 cc's per kilogram per 24 hours down to 120 cc's per kilogram per 24 hours. And they were using half normal saline or something similar to half normal saline as their resuscitation fluid. There, they changed the sodium by 0.3 millimoles per liter per hour, and they had no seizures in that group. And then that same group came back and repeated the same trick with oral rehydration, again, limiting the rise in sodium and uh, had no seizures with this slow rise in sodium less than 0.5 millimoles per liter per hour. And that's it, right? So besides these kitty studies, there's no like case series of correcting hypernatremia too fast causing cerebral edema. We don't even have case reports in adults, right? And the editorial for today's paper, Richard Stearns, Dean of Sodium, says there has not been a single convincing published report of cerebral edema after rapid correction of chronic hypernatremia in an adult. However, out of an abundance of caution, the safe rate for infants became enshrined in therapeutic recommendations for adults, along with advice to correct by less than 10 millim equivalents per liter per day to avoid overshooting the mark. In terms of adult series, there's been a number of them. Linder uh, reported on the prevalence of hypernatremia in an ICU setting. He found 9% on admission and then another 7% developed it during the hospitalization. Hypernatremia was associated with longer hospitalizations and increased mortality. So their hypernatremia cohort had a mortality right around 40% versus 24% mortality for standard admissions to the ICU. And that's important because today's study also has an elevated mortality of about 40%. So it's very consistent with the previous studies. There was another study from ER admissions in France, and they found prevalence of 0.2% and also found an association between slow correction and hospital death with a hazard, hazard ratio of 10.3 and a highly significant uh, p-value. There was a series in uh, U.S. veterans that also found that hypernatremia First of all, was we did a horrible job. We were only able to correct hypernatremia in 27% of patients after 72 hours. Like we had three days to correct it and only less than, less than one in three patients was corrected in that time. And they also found roughly 40% mortality and increased mortality was slow correction. And then the last thing I want to talk about before we get onto the study, you know, sodium is the primary osmotically active agent in the extracellular compartment, but glucose is also osmotically active if there's a lack of insulin. And so correcting DKA would be another venue where you could worry about inducing cerebral edema. If you lowered the glucose too fast, you would lower the extracellular osmolality and that could cause a shift of fluid into the cells and cause increased intracranial pressure. And there's definitely, there are about 1% of kids that get or adolescents that get DKA will develop cerebral edema. And I had, before I kind of looked into it, I always thought that that was really associated with this drop in osmolality, but it's not quite that simple. And I think there's more stuff going on there, but it's hard to draw a direct line from that drop in osmolality from the drop in glucose to the cerebral edema in that kids. Works in some patients, not in all those patients, um, but it's not nearly as direct. I think there's something about this paper that's also very interesting. And I think when you look at clinical medicine and you're rounding on the wards and you have your team with you, there's always questions that come up and you're like, wow, that's a great question. What's the answer? And you look up what you just went through and no one knows the answer. And so I think what's really interesting about this paper is that it was actually inspired by a trainee, a second year nephrology fellow, Nirali Patel, who had the question on rounds and spurred this entire study. And so I think I want the fellows that are listening to this to keep asking questions and actually get involved with the research that's happening because that's really what's pushing the field forward. We do come up with these questions from seeing patients. That's the only place we can come up with these questions. 
I think just a general comment from my experience as a fellow and and attending now the last year, I think we rarely have been worried about hypernatremia overcorrecting, but really more of a challenge has been getting primary teams um, that are managing the fluids to really give enough water. Um, and so I think the question for me was more is not as too fast, bad for neurological outcomes, but also what happens when it's not correcting or it's too slow. And so I think the study was interesting in kind of addressing both the too fast and the too slow question. I think you're absolutely right. And the big problem with hypernatremia is not overcorrection, but not by a long shot. The big problem with hypernatremia is inadequate correction. And there's always a number of reasons for that. But one of those reasons we can really kind of eliminate was the worry about cerebral edema. I think we're kind of moving ahead of the, ahead of the story. Why don't we, why don't we dive into the methods unless anybody else has any other comments? So the authors wanted to answer the central question of whether or not there is an association between the rate of correction of hypernatremia and adverse patient outcomes. So to do this, they performed a retrospective single-center observational study out of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and they used a database that was collected from 2001 to 2012. And this database is actually quite powerful in that it is large and freely available, it contains de-identified data for over 40,000 patients who stayed at Beth Israel's ICUs between 2001 and 2012. And the database contains data that includes demographics, bedside vital signs, laboratory tests, procedures, medications, even caregiver notes, imaging reports, and mortality documentation for both in and out of the hospital. And so in addition to this study, there are actually other publications arising from MIMIC-3 data, and they span diverse topics relevant to ICU care. I'm sorry, has anybody else used this database or read, read studies about this database before? No, this is my no. first time hearing about it. Yeah, I don't think nephrology- It's so intriguing, yeah, I don't right? think nephrology has used it a lot. It seems really powerful, right? It seems like it's just a great resource. I, can't, I, I, I did not realize it was freely available. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So lots to data mine there. Um, so so some you, can the- go to, uh, you can go to mimic.physionet.org. That's the website for the database. If you go there, you can see the list of publications that have come out of this database. And they also include other topics like ARDS, the use of artificial intelligence, sodium levels in the ICU, although not written by nephrologists, and palliative care referrals and their impact on outcomes in the ICU. So again, this seems to be a data goldmine for exploratory studies. So in short, what the authors were wanting to do was they included adult patients over 18 years old with serum sodium levels over 155 during their inpatient stay. And among those patients, those without follow-up sodium levels after peaking were excluded. They then calculated different rapid correction rates and used logistic regression to generate adjusted odds ratios with a 95% confidence interval to examine associations with the outcomes. So there are some uh, important definitions to go over just in terms of um, interpreting the results. Uh, the first is how they define chronic hypernatremia. So that's either, you know, you present on a mission with a serum sodium over 155, or if you did not present with hypernatremia, you had a serum sodium of over 145 for over 48 hours in the hospital. Slow correction was defined as less than 0.5 millimoles per hour, and so this would equate to 12 millimoles per 24 hours. Rapid correction was greater than that 0.5 cut point. And so they also did other subgroup analyses with different rates of hypernatremia correction. So they you know, did cut points of 8, 10, and 12 millimoles per liter per 24 hours. The main outcomes they were interested in looking at were one, mortality, 
And then two, the incidence of neurological outcomes defined by ICD-9 codes for cerebral edema, seizures, and alteration of consciousness. Uh, These outcomes were adjudicated by two independent clinicians who reviewed imaging reports and discharge summaries to determine if neurological conditions were attributable to rapid hypernatremia correction. Did they give us any indication of what they were actually looking for? You know, because this ends up being the crux of the study is whether these patients had neurologic abnormalities. And then kind of in the methods, they said, yeah, we looked at it and we tried to judge whether we thought these were due to hypernatremia or not. And it didn't feel like the paper gave me a good sense of, oh, we found some cerebral edema, but we didn't think it was due to hypernatremia. And I was like, well, that's convenient for you and your primary hypothesis that it doesn't matter. How did you determine that? Right? Like, how do you ever determine what the etiology of cerebral edema is? Yeah. So I think they uh, looked at the discharge summaries by the primary teams. So the very clairvoyant primary teams determined. I'm going to talk about this in the results section. And and I had the same question, but it looked like if they were in the supplementary data, had the actual cases and what they were. But for instance, someone had intracranial hemorrhage, and that's why they were admitted, or someone had trauma, or I mean, so it was, it sounded like, the reason for the cerebral edema was fairly obviously not associated with the hypernatremia correction. But as that far seems as fair. going through it, they didn't delineate that. But on the tweet chats, and they sort of talked a little bit about that. Though so it's interesting, the development of hypernatremia, you know, when you're, as your sodium is going up, decreases the size of the brain and it can tear the bridging vessels and it can be the cause of your cerebral bleed, but not the treatment of it. Just the development of hypernatremia. Don't get hypernatremia. It's not good. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. You don't want any part don't of Don't get too salty. Anybody have any other comments on the methods? Yeah. It, you know what it is? It's a very straightforward study design, right? I mean, they had a very clear question and they had a very cl- they had a nice database and and I think they went through went about solving it, answering the question in a straightforward way. Um, So I'm going to dive into these results. Um, So overall, they were able to identify 512 patients that they defined as having severe hypernatremia, which as Jenny mentioned, was a serum sodium of over 155 at any point during their hospital stay. Of these, 449 were included in the main analysis after those patients that did not have follow-up sodium levels beyond the peak level were excluded. Um, so normally we would go to table one here, but I'm going to actually start with table zero, which is actually supplemental table two. And so in, in this table, they break up the hospital acquired group versus the admission group and show us the, the differences between these. And I think it's relevant as these groups were significantly different. Um, so the hospital group had higher uh, percentage of men, 66% versus 46%. And interestingly, uh, almost half of them were on loop diuretics compared to only about a third in the admission acquired group. And then finally, about half of all of the patients had a Charlson comorbid score of two or higher. And so this was a new score for me. And so this was actually first described by Mary Charlson in 1987 in the Journal of Chronic Diseases. And she's actually now an internist at Cornell. And basically, the score takes into account multiple comorbid conditions, including kidney disease, cardiovascular disease, HIV, hematologic malignancy, and liver disease, and it spits out a score which estimates your 10-year survival. So a score of two gives your 10-year survival to be at 90%. And so most of these patients actually had a score of two or higher, so we're kind of looking at a wide range of 
um, patients here. And they didn't make it 10 years. They didn't make it to discharge, 40% of them. I mean, brutal. Maybe the Charleston score should include hypernatremia because this seems- <laughs> It's definitely a marker of badness. It's a marker of some serious badness, is right. Um, so table one, which actually breaks up the each of these bigger groups into- Slow versus rapid correction shows us the characteristics of then four groups. So hospital-acquired hypernatremia, rapid versus slow, and then hypernatremia on admission, rapid versus slow. And so 122 patients had severe hypernatremia on admission, and 327 developed hypernatremia during their hospital stay. I love how I love how they just call it hospital-acquired. They're not passing judgment, but come on, that's iatrogenic, right? These are people that can't drink. You're, the doctor's job is to give that patient enough water. And especially these patients, what you say, what percentage of them were on furosemide or loop diuretics? It was, a- it was about a half in the hospital-acquired group. Got to water the plant. Shameful. Okay, no. sorry. I'm not sorry. <laughs> I'm going to keep interrupting you. I'm not going to stop. Unintentional water deprivation. That's... <laughs> like that. With scare quotes around it, <laughs> unintentional. Um, and as we spoke about briefly earlier, actually, the majority of both groups was in the slow correction group, so less than 0.5 milliequivalents, um, millimoles per liter per hour, 74% in the admission group, and 69% in the hospital group. And both groups were majority uh, white patients. This is Boston. This is Boston, for sure. And the Charleston comorbidity index was actually different in the admission group in slow versus rapid. The 22% had a score of one in the rapid group versus 47% had a score of one in the slow group. Um, And finally, in the hospital group and the rapid correction group, not surprisingly, had a shorter length of stay that was actually three days less, four days versus seven days in the slow correction group. And interestingly, the serum bicarbonate was lower in the group that corrected rapidly in the hospital group. And a higher proportion of patients with metabolic acidosis and a bicarb of less than 20 was present in the rapid group. Um, So kind of the big question here is, was there a difference in mortality? I'm going to let Matt tell us a little bit about that. Here's the big question. Was there a difference in mortality? And we'll go through each of these separately. So we'll start with the admission group. So they did not detect any significant difference in in in-hospital 30-day mortality in the rapid versus the slower uh, hypernatremia correction groups. And that was uh, 25% versus 28%. And in the hospital group, again, there was no difference in in in-hospital 30-day mortality. And the mortality was 44% versus 40%. So pretty profound mortality, I would say. Yeah, but, but consistent with the published literature. Like as you were saying, you have to be pretty jacked up to get a sodium greater than 155. And this is what's been seen in multiple series, right around mortality, right around 40% in ICU patients with hypernatremia. What do you think about looking at 30-day in-hospital mortality versus just 30-day mortality? Good question. I I mean, I get maybe it was more challenging to get that information from the data set. I'm not sure. Yeah. I think this is what they could capture from their mimic three is my guess. They also looked at um, adjusted odds ratio of mortality in all of these groups. And that also didn't show any difference. So next, they did a manual chart review. And this is what we alluded to earlier. This was performed by two of the authors and it was in all suspected patients that likely had chronic hypernatremia. They, divine, they defined this as an individual that had a serum sodium of greater than 145 that was present for 48 hours or they were admitted to the hospital with hypernatremia. And so these are the patients that would have the highest risk of having a neurologic event, seizure, 
cerebral edema. And so they reviewed the imaging, the notes, the discharge summary. There's 122 patients that had hypernatremia on admission. 128 of the 327 hospital-acquired hypernatremias. Then they additionally looked at 28 patients that had ICD-9 codes for cerebral edema, seizures, and or altered levels of consciousness. And as we talked earlier, this is the really the big finding is they did not find a single case of cerebral edema, seizures, or alteration of consciousness that they attributed to the correction of hypernatremia. And in fact, the editorial and the Twitter discussion, a lot of that was brought out where there has not been a published case of neurologic event in a corrected, correcting hypernatremia in an adult. Right. That's the crazy thing. I mean, there's, you'd think in the history of case reports and the barrier you have to jump over to get a published case report is so low that somebody somewhere would find one case where you had rapid treatment of hypernatremia and cause this neurologic complication and nothing. There's, n- there's not a signal anywhere. And including now multiple, you know, three or four of these large case series, couple hundred patients each time, never do they find any, even a single case. It's amazing. Yeah, I think it was, I, did, I wasn't aware of that. Were these ICD-9 codes, the extra 29 patients, these were, it didn't matter what their sodium was? I was a little bit confused about that. They did a deep dive on anybody who had an ICD-9 code for cerebral edema or seizure. And in addition, they looked at all the people that had chronic hypernatremia. Just anyone in the cohort they were looking at. So uh, I want to push this back over to Samira and ask a question. So I think this is the interesting part when you're seeing patients and now you have a big cohort, you can look at this and kind of get a feel for what's happening. So how long did it take to correct these patients with hypernatremia? So I was a little bit surprised by these results. Um, So the hospital acquired group, the median time that it took to correct the sodium was 15 hours, which to me felt like faster than I've ever seen. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The rate of correction overall um, was faster in the hospital group, so 0.9 versus 0.7 millimoles per liter per hour. But the rate of correction within 24 hours was actually higher in the hypernatremia group that had it on admission. Um, But it was, you know, just 0.5 versus 0.4. So reached statistical significance, but I'm not sure that those matter numbers mean that much. So wait, so what does that mean? That means ha- roughly half the cohort corrected within 24 hours? Is that what you no, said? No, so the rate of correction at 24 hours. So they looked at the rate at 24 hours and then the rate overall. So overall, it was faster in the hospital group, hospital-acquired group, 0. 0.9. 0. 0.9 millimoles per liter right. per hour. And- uh, For the hospital. And group. then at 24 hours, it was higher in the admission hypernatremia group, and it, that was 0.5. The peak sodium was higher in the admission group, so it was 163 versus 158 in the hospital-acquired group, which again, um, I think just points to the need for better clinical care of not allowing people's sodium to get up to 158. So let's review a little bit about the correction rate. We just talked about the 30-day in-hospital mortality, but they did a little deeper dive than that. So Samira, tell us about that. The Kaplan-Meier survival curves for both groups, the curves basically look like they're lying on top of each other, showing no difference in 30-day in-hospital mortality, regardless of the rate of sodium correction. Um, So to 
prove the point a little bit further, they did sensitivity analyses using different cutoffs for rapid correction. So they looked at 8, 10, 12, and 24 milliequivalents of sodium correction per day. And they found the same results. Um, and they actually found that there was a trend towards lower mortality in the rapid correction rate groups. Rapid correction lowered mortality. There was a, a trend towards that. I'm looking at a p-value of 0.02 for the change, the delta of eight versus less than eight or greater than eight millimoles per liter per 24 hours. And the other ones aren't significant. Yeah, 0.9 and 0.14 p-values. And then for the hospital acquired, nothing. So I guess it was just a 10 and 12 that had the same results. But the trend, yeah, clearly the trend. And only for the patients with uh, hyponatremia on admission, the hospital acquired no difference for changing the fast versus slow. Um, and then finally, in their subgroup analyses, they found that mortality was higher in the hospital group with acute hypernatremia. So that meant it developed within 48 hours. Um, they do mention, and it and um, it's been described that the brain volume starts to decrease at 45 years of age. So it's kind of at its max then. Well, somebody's brain yeah. volume decreases at 45. <laughs> not, that's not all people over 45, okay? I want to be very clear there. <laughs> My brain started shrinking. <laughs> <laughs> About age 19 for Joel. <laughs> I think this study is pretty simple. I think the key pieces here is speed of correction didn't matter. The thing that I think is important that we haven't touched on is the large number of people in hospice. Does anybody have any comments on that? <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> I don't think I, I looked at that, no. Can you, since you, you want to say something about it? I'm looking, no, it's, it's not hospice. It's DNR percentage. It's table one continued. So it's on the second page of table one. So admission hypernatremia, DNR, 48% of their people with slow correction and 38% of the people with fast correction. And then among hospital acquired, 27% and 23%. And so we're, especially among the patients that are coming into the hospital with these very high sodiums, th these are patients that I imagine are nursing home patients that are kind of just being warehoused. They're not able, they're not very oriented. They're not able to request water on their own. They are DNR and uh, not getting great care at the nursing home. But I still think it's very... Uh, it's important because th those patients are getting hypernatremia very frequently. That's who we're actually seeing and understand how the correction is affecting their neurologic condition or getting cerebral edema is important. So it is real world. So I wouldn't really look at it as being a limitation. I guess my concern is, do we take lessons from patients with profound baseline dementia and DNR status and then apply them to the admittedly rare but possible occasional young patient, right? One of the comments I made in Twitter is, now that we're looking at data that shows that rapid treatment of hypernatremia is safe, are we making the exact same mistake that we made when we extrapolated danger from infants from zero to five months and saying, hey, we shouldn't be rapidly correcting the hypernatremia, it's dangerous. Are we doing the exact same thing by extrapolating safety from people that are 80 years old and 40% of them are DNR status, probably many nursing home residents, and applying that to patients that might be significantly younger? That's my concern. I would totally agree with that. And I think yeah. that's where, as we mentioned, that do we need to have a younger cohort of patients to be able to make a definitive statement? And this is an older cohort, like you mentioned, a lot of DNR status, but it's still a nice study to ask this question, but still need to be cautious, I think. Well, and I think the advantage is that there was no, at least in this study, there's no clear signal of harm to going slow, right? 
there's an occasion, one of the, in their sensitivity analysis, only one of those was significantly worse for going slow. There was just a trend. So if you do have a patient that you might be concerned about, go slow. No harm there, right? If when you get that occasional chronic hypernatremia in a young person, which is, it really boggles the mind how that happens. But, you know, you can, I can imagine it. You know, patient codes, gets a bunch of hypertonic bicarb, then gets a bunch of LASIK because they're fluid overloaded. And also three days later, you're looking at, uh, you're looking at chronic hypernatremia. I think in that situation, you might want to go slow in correcting it. Um, so we're going to finish up the results here. Um, looking at the manual review, trying to find these neurological complications. Right. We discussed a little bit about the manual review and there's going to go a little, a couple more things to, to discuss about that. Uh, so they also looked at the 78 patients that had a rapid correction and they didn't have any evidence of cerebral edema or other, other issues. They did a manual review of basically the peak sodium and then to discharge and reviewed the progress notes, imaging, discharge notes. And so I think it, to me, it looked like a very thorough job to really make a, a case that um, even in the extreme situations, you didn't see any evidence that the correction led to any neurological derangement. Um, so just to start to wrap this up a little bit, some of the implications of this study. Um, and I think it's an important to talk about, as we already alluded to, the importance of the brain volume and how much space that allows for the brain to swell if there is the development of cerebral edema. And so I think it would be interesting going forward to see how younger patients might do um, with similar electrolyte abnormalities. Um, a couple limitations of the study, some of these were pointed out by the authors, some of these are limitations of the database. This was a single center study. These were only ICU patients. So how do we extrapolate this data to those that are not in the ICU? We don't really know a lot about the timing of the hypernatremia in the admission group. How long was it present for? Was it a couple days? Was it a couple weeks? And then finally, we don't really know much about how the hypernatremia was treated. Do different treatment options make a difference? Um, so I think these are kind of interesting things to think about going forward. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in the end, the big question that's unanswered here is, does treating hypernatremia matter, right? There's some signal that going faster may be better, but, you know, we believe that hypernatremia is incredibly uncomfortable to patients, causes a lot of suffering, but we don't have compelling, you know, treat it, didn't treat it data showing that there's an improvement. Though, of course, this is the same across all the electrolytes. We always try to normalize the electrolytes. We think that's good for patients. Unfortunately, the data behind that belief is thin. What I think this study allows you to do is, as Jenny was saying earlier, big problem is getting resistance to giving enough water in the ICU is that uh, pulmonologists and cardiologists and surgeons sometimes say you can't give that much volume to this patient. And as much as you try to point out that giving D5 or PO water is not giving a lot of volume, almost all of it moves into the, let me be very specific. When you give a liter of D5, only 60 to 80 of those CCs, a couple of shots worth remains in the intravascular volume. The rest of it goes in the interstitium and most of it goes into the intracellular compartment. And so it shouldn't, you know, stretch out the ventricle, cause any of the problems that they're worried about in terms of getting these patients off the vent. Uh, that said, there's always a lot of resistance to giving enough water. And I think we can use this article at least as ammunition to say, hey, we don't need to worry about rapid correction of hypernatremia. That's not going to cause the problem. So if that's the particular resistance you're seeing, this is going to be a good study to be able to say, hey, this shouldn't be a problem. Matt, I want to hear your wisdom. Well, yeah, I was really thinking about something I wanted to talk about. And I want to go, let's, let's talk a little bit about the science here. I'm going to have to science the shit out of this. 
Okay. Uh, so they cite a really interesting paper that was published in 1990 from JCI and is from Lean et al. And this is another study that sort of helped make these guidelines to say we need to go slow because we don't want to risk having cerebral edema. We haven't really talked about it, but when you have hypernatremia, the, there's a lot of compensatory mechanisms that occur to try to save that cell from those huge fluctuations in osmolality that's occurring in the extracellular and intracellular space. And what happens is organic and inorganic solutes uh, start to be made and put inside the intracellular space to try to protect the cell. And so this study used rats and they had four different groups. They had a normal group, they had a severe acute hypernatremia group, where they actually put in four molar saline intraperitoneal, and then two hours later sacrificed the animals. And their sodiums went from 140 to 194. Wow. <laughs> um, so really very severe. Then they that's had a, a salty a, mouse. That's a salty mouse, right, a rat. Uh, so th- then there's a moderate chronic hypernatremia group, and they use 5% saline every other day for seven days and sacrifice the animals. And there's a severe chronic hypernatremia where they did 5% saline uh, twice a day for seven days. And so in the moderate group, they got their sodiums up to about 160, and then the severe, they got up to 180. And what they wanted to do was then take the brains of these animals and look to see how much water, how much solute, and exactly what organic and inorganic solutes that they could find and to see sort of how quickly it changed and then how how long did it take for it to get back to normal. And so what they found is that in the acute hypernatremia scenario, there really wasn't much of a change. And so even though they had really large increases in in serum sodium concentrations, there wasn't enough time for the adaptation to occur. However, in both the chronic scenarios, even the moderate and the severe had increases in many of these solutes, and and some names are uh, myo-inositol, betine, GPC, which is glycerophosphocholine. They actually also found that the values of all these organic and inorganic solutes returned to normal values two days after the correction. So they concluded that the osmols do play an important role in protecting the cells from hypernatremia, and the thought is if you allow all of these to um, develop in the cell and then correct the hypernatremia, then you'll have uh, cerebral edema that would occur. Interesting, um, they didn't say a whole lot about um, if that happened in the rats. So um, this is sort of an interesting study. Um, the values are definitely way higher than you'd ever see in the hospital and the patients. Sodiums of 160 don't sound too unreasonable. The 160s are like probably reasonable. Totally reasonable hypertrophy. 180, 190, that's pretty high. And this is an interesting study, I think, and says like, you know, what, what there is a lot of things that are happening in the cell that maybe you, it's not just this change in the sodium. There's a lot of other uh, things that happen in order to protect these, uh, especially in the neurons, from, from shifts in this osmolality. Do you know if these rats had a 20-year-old or 70-year-old human brain volume? <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah, they definitely do not. Uh, they're all young rats. Well, and they were talking about the development of hypernatremia, not the correction. So the, the brain volume shouldn't be a problem in this situation. You know, first of all, the editorial by Richard Stearns is phenomenal. And what he really focuses on is a lot of the guidelines were developed with the idea that there should be symmetry between the hyponatremia and hypernatremia because the science makes sense that way. But as I'm reading that, I can't stop thinking about the most, one of the most remarkable things about chronic hyponatremia is that when you see somebody roll into the ER and they have that sodium of 104 and they're 
stone cold normal. Like you can't pick up anything on physical exam that's abnormal, right? Because it's so, it, they've developed it so slowly and so chronically, they fully compensate it. And I can't think of any episodes of severe hypernatremia where the patient wasn't in a coma, right? Like cr- acute, chronic, doesn't matter. That sodium get up to 170, that patient is out. And I think it's, a, I think that's an important difference that we just never see that kind of compensated hypernatremia where the patient's completely asymptomatic. And the only thing that, that everybody's shocked when they see that sodium of, oh, it's 170. I had no idea. The patient seems completely normal. Like we see that in hyponatremia over and over again, never in hypernatremia. Should we uh, review some tweets, Samira? Um, yeah. So one of my favorite tweets from the NFJCs from uh, this paper, but this is from Rob Peel. He said, if you are too ill to drink, then there's something far wrong, I guess. I'll retweet that. I found a couple others I thought were, were interesting. And John Booth, who tweets um, at the peanut kidney, always has good thoughts. And so he commented on the phenomenal resource of the database, a huge publicly available data set, just waiting to be interrogated with juicy questions. Uh, another one that I found from Sri Leka, and she says, I think primary teams perceive that nephrologists want to check labs frequently. Great to show that that's not the case. We want to check when indicated, but how often should we be checking sodium levels when we're correcting hypernatremia? Well, I think uh, Steve Coca, who actually joined all the chats, right, uh, he had his nice quote that he, or his own quote that he tweeted, he said, just set it and forget it. (laughs) So he would probably argue, don't check it too often, get a good night's sleep, you know, go relax, don't freak out is basically his advice to the interns and the house staff who are taking care of these patients. He said, give a nice chunky rate of water and come back tomorrow, or don't page the renal fellow overnight <laughs> with all your sodium levels. And I actually really enjoyed his set of tweets, and he had a lot of Game of Thrones references all sprinkled out through his NFJC, <laughs> talking about whether or not Cersei was hypernatremic, drinking off drinking water off the floors and stuff like that, and cursing in high valerian about uh, challenging people to find a case of um, over some neurological consequences from overcorrection. He also had a nice tweet stream where he, he said that Richard Stearns is a well-known uh, expert witness in cases of central pontimolinolysis. Like that's my nightmare is that I ever over-treat a hyponatremia and I get sued. And on the other side of the bench is uh, Richard Stearns grilling me on my treatment of hyponatremia. I wake up in a cold sweat just thinking about that. For this guy, who is a someone who definitely is a, a, a hired gun for lawyers, to not be aware of a single case of overcorrection of hyponatremia resulting in neurologic injury is pretty good proof that none of them, that it just doesn't exist. That if anybody was going to be able to find that case, it would be a, a plaintiff attorney looking for a reason to sue a doctor. I'm convinced. Okay, so we're done. We're done with the uh, the glomerular filtration. Anybody have any proximal tubule secretion, which is my new name for the extra stuff we add to the end of the podcast? Wait, what? Say that one more time. <laughs> right. So we're done with the filtration at the glomerulus, and now it's proximal tubule secretion time. So Matt, I've called you the organic anion transporter. What do you got? I was <laughs> <laughs> supposed to come prepared for something. <laughs> I'm at the pass today. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair enough. The o- I don't really care about organic plus I'm transport at anyways. 21 minutes. <laughs> okay. What are you, you're 21 minutes. Brutal. And we got Game of Thrones tonight. Come on. We we got 51 minutes to Game of Thrones, You're but your hard drive's not going to make it. Jenny, what do you got? And these are just general tweets from Neff Twitter. 
No, this is whatever you want to talk about. Is there, is there is there something that you just like? I need to tell the world, or at least the sixty five people that subscribe to our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> is there something you need to tell them? I actually got uh, swept up a little bit into uh, uh, some tweet threads that span both Neff Twitter and new PI Slack. So you know, as I mentioned in the intro, I'm a physician scientist, and I'm in the Slack workspace. It's basically an app where you can chat with people in real time. But this is for all scientists who have started a lab within the past five years. And it was basically calculating your Kardashian index. What's a Kardashian index? Scientific Kardashian index. So there was someone um, who I think I forget his name. He's a a researcher and director of a biomedical institute who was saying that if you have more Twitter followers, then there's like a ratio, some sort of critical ratio of Twitter followers to actual publication citations in academics. And if that ratio is too high, you have a high Kardashian index, meaning you're, you know, somehow like more on the social media side and maybe a little bit less serious academically. And a lot of people, especially young scientists and young academics took offense at that because a lot of people are using Twitter to interface and network and actually talk to each other and get help with projects. And that there is added value on promoting your own work, but also pushing forward your work and, you know, making gains uh, for your projects, for whatever academic endeavor you want to do, and whether that is in clinical education, um, in research. And so having that uh, metric uh, actually offended some people. And I don't have enough um, followers, I guess, because my index is only like a little bit above five, but five was a cut point at which you're considered to be more of a Kardashian than an academic. <laughs> I don't know if you guys participated in any of that. Well, no, I, I, I calculated mine. Mine was embarrassing. <laughs> uh, I think it was 6,200. Mine was 68. Wow. But it's, it, you know, it's, it's not that it's hard to get a citation. It's pretty easy to pick up a follower, right? Especially when they're all bots. <laughs> <laughs> They're not, mine are not bad. Stop that. <laughs> yeah, but the original guy who posted it, at least on the science side, um, he got roasted and dragged by all the new PIs. <laughs> um, so that was something where I saw two different worlds collide. That was kind of cool. How active How active is that uh, Slack? Oh, I mean, that Slack workspace, yeah, it's very active. I would say dozens of people are posting every hour. You can selectively choose which channels that you actually follow. But we get lots of discussions about grants, publications, you know, how to get promoted. So for me, as a young person in academics, that's been very valuable. And I actually wonder, I was when I was walking my dog today, I was actually wondering, you know, whether or not this would be a good avenue for all the nephrology fellows, all the active ones to have a way to directly communicate with each other. Um, that'd be kind of cool to have some active live private commiserating <laughs> or just you know, practical help too. They do have the fellows community that's private. Oh, on ASN communities? I don't know if it's very active, but they have that. Yeah. You're kind of in the hen house though, right? Like, there's nice thing about Slack is that it really could be a fellow only community. It's interesting because uh, Facebook had their big developer conference. And one of the things that Facebook's really trying to do is they're trying to really push on privacy as they're kind of their next frontiers that they're going to try to have uh, more private options focusing on WhatsApp and uh, Facebook Messenger instead of posting to Facebook Timeline where everybody can see it or there's some limited privacy options, really pushing these other privacy-focused 
venues that they have. And I kind of think that's a bigger trend in social media is things like Twitter and Facebook, where you're kind of just out in the community is being de-emphasized and people are going to more selective things like Slack, like WhatsApp. There was an interesting article by Kinar Javari uh, that recently came out that he was using WhatsApp to forward questions and learning points to their fellows and their fellows could answer the questions and they could create discussions from that. It was pretty interesting use of new technology. And uh, Kanar is a guy who's really kind of on the front of these uh, new medical education technologies. So I think that the Slack and the WhatsApp are very consistent with kind of where social media is going in general. Matt, you still have any hard drive space? 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I do have a gummy fish, okay? So You're doing good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so a really interesting thing I came across. Um, so I'm preparing to go to the uh, American Transplant Congress meeting in Boston in a couple weeks and uh, trying to put together a poster and saw on Twitter this kind of campaign for the redesign of the poster goes with the hashtag better poster and I actually watched the video today. It's developed by a PhD student. His name is Mike Morrison and it's really nice 20 minute video kind of showing how the current way that we participate in and take in poster sessions just really makes no sense um, and then kind of goes on into the redesign and actually has templates that you can download and make your own poster. Um, so I, I think it, it really reminded me of the visual app abstract and creating a document that really shares what people need to know and how to foster better understanding of whatever topic it is that you're trying to share. So I'm hoping I give this a test run, see how it goes. Yeah. I, I think that video, first of all, the production quality is phenomenal. And second of all, he's really rethinking the poster for what's its job to be done, right? And he says the job to be done is to allow people to understand at a glance whether they want to know more about the poster. And then since you're sitting in front of the poster, you can be the person to provide that additional information. And it's a very clever way to redesign the poster. I thought I was, I was delighted. And it was by a, my first time making a QR code today. And so I have a QR code to our publication on the poster. So it just felt very cool. And I'm hoping it's well received. That's really cool. Excellent. What else can the QR codes be used for? So you can you can develop a QR code to go to any URL. I don't know if you can do documents, but it seemed like the one, the creator that I used, you had to put in a URL. So the thing I wanted to talk about was uh, I had a patient this week who brought in this list from uh, GoodRx. So GoodRx is this phenomenal app that allows you to know what the retail price of any drug is. And then they have some, they also generate coupons that are provide pretty significant savings for patients. And the most amazing thing about it is how often patients can buy a drug at retail for less than their copay. People's head explodes when I tell them that, but uh, it's not it's not uncommon. And the way I always determine it is by just looking up the drug in GoodRx, and I can tell them which pharmacy or drugstore or supermarket to go to buy it. But apparently, they also have a blog, and they talk about and they blog about different medications. And they have a bunch of different authors. And this patient brought in this list. It was the ten worst medications for your kidneys. And on that list, you know, kind of expected number one was NSAIDs, number two was vancomycin. I'm not don't think it's quite that toxic. I would put uh, something else there. Number three, diuretics. Yes, all of them. They call out thiazides, loop diuretics, and that seems to be kind of a jump. Number four, iodinated contrast, no surprise. Number five, ACE inhibitors. Top 10 worst drugs for your kidneys, ACE inhibitors. Number six, Jardiance. 
right? Our SGLT2 inhibitors, this is empagliflozin, probably the biggest advance in preserving kidneys that we've had in 20 years, right on the list. Seven aminoglycoside and eight HIV medications and antiviral drugs, right? <laughs> One of the greatest revolutions we've seen in our lifetime has been the defeat of HIV with these anti-HIV medications, and especially the disease uh, uh, HIVAN, right? This is the disease that disappeared with highly effective uh, antiretroviral therapy, worst drugs for your kidneys. Zolendronic acid, and then phoscarnet. That's a bizarre list. But it's just, you know, your patient comes in with this list and says, Doc, what are you doing to me? I got all these drugs on. You got me on three of these different drugs that are harmful to my kidneys. What, what, what are you doing? And it just, it really, it bothered me. And, you know, it's funny if you, that's the list. And if you actually read her, the authors is Dr. Orange. Uh, if you actually read her text about it, it's a pretty balanced and nuanced description of the drugs. But I just think, you know, hiding behind the fact that I have a balanced view, if you actually read the editorials, and it's not how these lists are read. Like people just look at the list and see if, is, are there drugs on that list? And if their drug is on that list, their, their doctor's doing a bad job. I mean, that was clearly the impression that my patient had. I tried to engage the author on Twitter. She had none of that. She wasn't interested in talking to me at all. And so I'm, uh, I'm currently, Talking with uh, good RX to see if we can get any kind of uh, any kind of restitution. Just, I mean, you know, it's so frustrating that the group of uh, Neff Twitter is real careful about what we say on on Twitter and what we write in NefJC, and we try to be very conscious and not inflammatory and not go beyond the data. And then you get people that seem to be just interested in getting lots of clicks and having an inflammatory headline to generate those clicks. It is a uh, it's a bit frustrating. Uh, Swapnil pointed out that she had another post looking at um, uh, drugs that can bump your creatinine. And uh, this one also has some mistakes in it. So well, we'll see if we can get uh, some things changed. Hey, uh, everybody, thanks for joining us. Uh, and we'll see you in a few weeks after this one, after the next Nef, Nef JC. Watch those potassiums. Matt, what's your tagline? What's your tagline as we go out? I haven't developed one yet. <laughs> It's been four weeks. It's time to develop a tagline. Okay, Jenny, what do, you, what do you say? I did not know we were having taglines. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's, it, it really is. It's, a, it's amateur. An apple of totally keeps the nephrologist away. See, yeah. Samira knows what he's, what's up. So you see what she's I'm doing? Guys, up. get on the program. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, guys. Good night. Good night. Good night. Yeah. Happy Game of Enjoy Thrones. Enjoy the show. Watching.